You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Um, So we're in a series. Uh, We're actually getting close to the end of the series. And it's a We've titled the series, uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. And the reason we've done that is because we're looking in the Old Testament, we're looking at uh, characters and stories, many of them very familiar to us in the Old Testament. And what we're looking for is not Jesus specifically. So not Jesus um, pre-incarnate, not, not the Jesus we know from the Gospels, that the second person of the Trinity, the, the God that became man. What we're looking for is how the Old Testament is longing for and hoping for and, and needing a Savior. And listen, the Old Testament characters, they, they, they can't ultimately save. The Old Testament characters, these Old Testament stories reveal for us our absolute need and dependence and weakness And that we are longing for the one who will redeem us and save us and rescue us from our sin and from the plight and all the trouble of of the world. And so as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, I was thinking about it last night and, and up this morning praying through it. I didn't plan on this. I couldn't have planned on this. But I think, man, if we were gonna preach something this morning in light of all of the things that we've been watching on the news the last couple of days about the terrorist attack in Paris and the fear and the, uh, the intimidation that a, a terrorist group would, would want to inflict upon the world, I can hardly think of a better passage this morning. And that the that the goal of the passage, hear me from the very beginning, that the goal of the passage is not that, hey, listen, you're going to walk out of here and be a better David. I mean, this is the story of David and Goliath, maybe the most famous story you've, you've ever known. If you grew up in Sunday school, you saw it on flannel graph. I mean, I remember as a boy going out there and thinking, man, all I need is a Dallas Cowboy uniform and, 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 and five stones and a slingshot, man, and, and we can defeat the Giants, the New York ones uh, even. But I mean, that's what I wanted to be inspired. And you know what? As a little boy, I was inspired. And it was awesome that the little shepherd boy could go out there and defeat the giant. And I'd leave with my list of giants that I was going to go out and sling stones at. And yet, I'll tell you, if that's all we leave with this morning, we don't have very much hope. Because what happens is David grows up, he becomes a man. He becomes a man who embodies the fallenness and failure of every single one of us. And while David on this day will be the savior and deliverer of Israel, it won't be but a few chapters until David is the one in desperate need of a savior and deliverer. And what we find is that David is not actually the deliverer. David is not actually the savior. It's God. It's the God he worships. It's the God he has faith in. It's the God that in the midst of his failure and all of his fallenness, he's going to cry out to in the Psalms to save him. So that's what we want to see this morning. And exactly how does David give us a picture? Does David foreshadow for us the coming Jesus, the greater David? 
So I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to summarize the story up until verse 26 for us. I want to pick up in earnest in verse 26. But to tell you how it goes, it opens up the scene in the first three verses, and it tells us that there are two camps. You have the Philistine army that have come up against the Israel army. And they've put themselves on two different hills, and between them is this place called the Valley of Elah. And so, so some scholars look at that and believe the Valley of Elah is the Valley of Death. It's where a lot of battles took place. It was where uh, the, the, if, if, you had, if you held that position in the world of that day, you had incredible influence in the world. And so the Philistines, who are the lifelong enemies of the Israelites since they've come into the promised land, have come to the valley of Elah, they have set up camp on a mountain, and they are waging war against Israel. And Israel responds, their army comes out, they set up camp, they line up for battle, and then in verse 4 what happens is that the author is going to introduce to us what we're going to believe at the moment to be the main character of the story, and that's a man named Goliath. Goliath is from a place called Gath. It's one of the Philistine cities, one of the five cities of the Philistines. And Gath is where the descendants of the Anakim came from. And if you were to go back to Genesis and Deuteronomy and then look into Joshua, you'd see the Anakim. These were the giants of the day. They were where the college football scouts would go to recruit linemen or or the basketball coaches would go to look for their posts. They were taller than any other men. The saying in Gath were the men are tall and the women are too, kind of a thing. That's where Goliath is from, and he's huge. And, and, and the author, he opens up and he says, hey, listen, here's Goliath, and he's from Gath. And we're like, oh man, he's from Gath. And then he tells us how big he is. He's between eight and nine feet tall. And not only that, he has this armor. He has the most high-tech, sophisticated armor of the day. In fact, to put this armor on, it, it weighs about 125 pounds is what the author tells us. And then he also had a spear, this long spear. And the tip of the spear itself weighed 15 pounds. And so this man was strong enough to walk around in 125 pounds of armor, yield a uh, 15-pound spear, and you put all that together. And and his armor and weaponry alone probably weighed more than the average Israelite uh, soldier. The, the author wants us to feel the terror and the desperation that Israel would have felt. There, there they are, and they're on the mountain, and, and they've had some dealings with the Philistines, and they haven't been terribly successful yet because the Philistines are still around. They've come to pick a fight, and this time, Goliath is going to pick up for us in verse 8, that he's going to come down to the valley, and he's going to shout to Israel, And essentially, he's going to show up and say, hey, look at me. Behold me. I am God's gift to warriors. And here's the deal. You've come. You've come to fight me. And he's going to say, let me make it easy for you. Why don't you just send your very best warrior? Why don't you send your most experienced warrior, the one that has the very best chance, have him meet me in this valley, and we'll fight to the death, winner take all. If he kills me, all the Philistines will become your servants. If, if I kill him, you become our servants. And then he cries out, I'm sure with what a deep rumbling voice through the valley, and says, I defy 
Israel. Well, in verse 11, it has the intended consequence. In verse 11, you see that Saul and all of Israel are afraid. Uh, in, in fact, um, they're, it says they're dismayed and they have great fear. And the chief of those would have been Saul because we find out from the description, Saul, he was about a head taller than everybody else. He was the one who was the warrior. And I'm sure all the Israelite soldiers are like, well, um, Saul, he's calling your name. That's kind of hard to say to a king, right? You know, Saul, you know, good luck. You're the biggest of us. You're our king. You're our leader. Besides all that, you're the warrior. In fact, we, we picked you because you look so good on the front of the magazine. And by the way, what's the succession plan? So when you go out there and he kills you, who gets to be in charge? And he wants to send the letters home to your family. I mean, how do you say that to the king? Israel knows he's the one. Saul knows he's the one. And nobody's doing anything about it. And there you are. And the, and the author brings us to that place of fear and dismay there in verse 11. But then in verse 12, what the author's going to do is he's going he's to turn the page for a minute. And he's going to introduce to us, we're ready for a hero. And so he's going to introduce him to us. But I want you to notice how he's introduced. He's introducing David, and David's a teenage boy. He's from uh, Bethlehem. His father's an Ephraimite. His father's old. He, he's gotten old in age, which means, and he's the youngest of eight children, and he's a shepherd, which means he's the youngest of an aging man. So his, his old man didn't teach him, you know, couldn't teach him how to fight. He's past fighting age, and teenager by now, they don't wrestle on the ground, you know, break the old man in half. His three older brothers, they're warriors. They've gone on to be with Saul. But David's a shepherd. And he goes back and forth and back and forth because he's got sheep to tend. And all of a sudden, you're left with the feeling of, okay, something big is about to happen, and I don't know how it's going to happen. Because if David's introduced as the hero, that doesn't seem very promising. Well, David... Uh, in, in verse 16, it tells us that the Philistines came forward. They took their stand morning and evening. They did it for 40 days. It's at this point that David's father comes to him and says, Hey, David, here's what I need you to do. I need you to take some barley and some grain and some bread and some cheese, and I need you to, to take all this and go to the front lines and, and take some to your brothers and take some to the generals, and, and I need you to go there. And then what I want you to do is to come back and bring a report, bring a token. Let, let, us, let me know how it's going out there. That the nation's waiting with bated breath to know how this thing is going to end in this valley of death. Well, in verse uh, 23, David, we find, he has come from the fields where he tended sheep to his father's house to gather the things, out to where the battle's taking place. He's there on Ezekiel with the Israelite army, and he makes his way to the front line. And in verse 25, uh, he gets to the front line and he hears the Philistine say the words. Or verse 23, he hears them, him say the words. He hears him come out as he's done every single day to taunt Israel. 
And he taunts them. And in verse 24, all the men of Israel flee. And in verse 25, the men of Israel say, and maybe they're saying this to David. Maybe they're looking at him and saying, hey, listen, you're new to the show. You just got here. We've endured 40 days of this. Do you hear? Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up, he says, to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. He won't have to pay taxes the rest of his life. The, the king Saul has sweetened the pot. Anybody willing to go down there and fight this man and kill him? The keys to the kingdom are his. And then I want you to see in verse 26, and this is where I want to pick up. This is the first recorded words of David. If you write things in your Bible, you could write that out to the side. This is the first time we hear in all of Scripture David speak. We've been introduced to him beforehand, but these are his first words. In verse 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The, the words of the teenage shepherd boy are going to inject into this scene what has been missing all along, and that is perspective. And he says, hey, listen, who, who, who's going in? I mean, what are you waiting for? Haven't you already discussed the prize of the... that's going to go to the guy that kills the Philistine? But more than that, notice, here's what he says. The uncircumcised Philistine who denies the armies of the living God. And with that, David breaks his silence. See, the first words of Israel's future king hang in the air over Israel at that point. See, the reason is because up to this point, the entire story has been godless. It has been the, Phili it has been the Israelite army. It has been Saul and his men around him that have been able to see nothing else but the fierceness of a giant standing in the valley, taunting them. But it's David who shows up, the teenage shepherd boy who doesn't see the fierceness of the enemy. What he sees is the offense to God. I mean, doesn't, doesn't having a living God make any difference in all of this? David's saying. I mean, this guy has mocked the ranks of the living God. And if God's identified himself with Israel, do you think that he takes that kind of offense and mockery lightly? This isn't just about you. This is about the reputation of the living God. Do you allow, do you think God will allow this uncircumcised Philistine to trample all over his name? In the midst of all this theological mud here? See, Israel, they looked and thought that the Philistine was, was invulnerable. For David, he was just another pagan who was uncircumcised, which means he wasn't a part of the covenant of God. See, a, a, a living God, the reality that we serve a living God, David says, makes a whole thing look different. See, for us, I would say as an aside, I mean, we, 
When we focus on the things that cause us fear, we, we begin to stew over the things that are impossible, right? I mean, we see it and our anxiety rises and we begin to focus on it. And we begin to think, okay, well, how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to do that? Or how am I going to get around it? Or how, how might I cut this off? And we begin to focus on this thing that stands before us. And in the midst of that, it builds and builds and builds. And we lose sight of the fact that the thing we fear is not what we worship. We have a God who we worship. I mean, David reminds the army of Israel that there's more to this story. It's the weakest person in the story who has the right perspective. Listen, it shows us how crucial that we hold to a right starting point. That we raise the right questions at the very beginning. All of our life, all of our life as a believer requires that our thinking is God-centric. He's at the center of all of it. Our life is in His hands. The God who says, promised, promised Israel and, and Jesus who promises the disciples and all the disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. That our life begins there. Well, I want us to see quickly how David gets to that point. So at this point, you, you hear from David, and he makes this great statement, and that hangs in the air, and you think, okay, great. Here's David. He believes in God. He's ready to get out there. We're ready for David to face Goliath. But he's going to have to face somebody else before he does, and that's his older brother Eliab. Eliab is the oldest of the eight sons. He's one of the leaders in Saul's army. In fact, when Samuel came looking for Jesse's sons, Eliab was the one who was most attractive. He was the guy that was going to get the scholarship to the team, and David, he's just out there tending sheep. And Eliab, frankly, he's completely ticked off. Here's the younger brother. He comes, and he's angry at him. And look at verse uh, 28. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David essentially says, well, what have I done now? It's like you hear the little brother say to the big brother, well, what do I do now? Did you know, can I even say something? I mean, Eliab, he, 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 he wants essentially in this moment to take an opportunity to remind David how insignificant he is. You have no business here. What are you doing? Aren't you supposed to be tending to those sheep? Not even that great amount of sheep. Just those few little sheep. Don't you know who you are? Besides all that, you're just here to provoke a battle. You just want to see us lose. Turns out Eliab is going to be wrong on every one of those points. But one writer says this. David actually faces three Goliaths. In, in Eliab... He faces the contempt of a Goliath. That the man of God who, who by faith comes and calls this nation to perspective, he's going to face the contempt of a Goliath, and it's going to come from his very own brother. The second is he's going to face this uh, evaluation 
of a Goliath when Saul sizes him up. And then finally, all that happens before he ultimately meets the carcass of Goliath laying on the ground. Well, in verse 31, there's this interchange. Saul shows up, wants to know who this kid is. He um, has a conversation with David. In verse 32, David says, look, I'm willing to go. If nobody else is willing, I'm willing. I'll go down there. In verse 33, what happens? Saul objects and says, no, you can't go down there. You don't even have any experience as a warrior. Besides all that, this guy, Goliath, he's been fighting and killing people longer than you've been alive. And then look in verse 34. David's going to going to record this recording of David's speech to Saul. It says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he's defied the armies of the living God. Now I want you to know that's not all that David's going to say there. If David leaves it there, then what we would think is, man, David is the bravest, most courageous, most outstanding, skilled, young shepherd there ever was. In fact, we'd, we'd have costumes at the Christian bookstore of David, and we'd buy stones and slings and staff. And we'd all be set out to be like David. But I want you to hear that David has a theological interpretation on his life. This is what's instructive about David. It is not that he's gotten on Facebook and Twitter and told everybody how awesome he is. He does not get on and post selfies with the bears and the lions that he kills. I mean, that's what we do today. Hashtag the Shep, right? <laughs> we do. Just so you think that's silly? I'm telling you. Look at verse 37. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I have to think that's quite a moment for Saul to look upon this teenage boy, Saul, in all of his stature, and all of his glory, and all of his fame, and all of his significance, to be so afraid and so resigned to defeat that he would send a teenage boy into the valley to face a giant. Saul is looking for every way in the world not to be the man. The reason is we find out a few chapters before that, God's taken his spirit away from him. In fact, God sent a spirit that's caused him great anxiety and great trouble. Saul is a shell of what his nation had hoped that he would be. 
So what happens is, is that Saul is going to do the only thing he knows to do, and that's to take his armor and to try to put it on David. He's going to try to dress him up as a little Goliath, okay? So hand him a little thing, say, go trick-or-treat Goliath. I mean, it's comical here. I mean, it's, it's too big for him. He tries to dress him up in all of this strength. I mean, man, if you're going out there, you at least ought to have some strength, David. But it doesn't fit. He can't even walk in it. I mean, listen, David's battle... This is the whole point of the whole narrative. If we miss this, we miss it all. David is going to have to fight in his weakness. That's the point. David is going to go out and represent his nation. He's going to fight not for his nation, but as his nation. Because whatever happens to David happens to Israel. And it's not going out there in strength. It's not going out there in the symbols of strength. It's not going out there with all the technology and all the hopes and all the dreams that whatever man can make, he is going to go out in weakness. And it is through his weakness that God is going to deliver. God's going to deliver Israel through the weakness of his deliverer. Now hang on to that. Well, in verse 41, Goliath's the first out of the gate. That The author builds it just like, just like Goliath would want, us, want him to. And the Philistine, it says in verse 41, moved forward and came near to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. So it's not just Goliath, it's Goliath and his shield bearer. It's two against one. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. It's like he was in a boy band or something. And then he says, but in the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you'd come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. In the name of Dagon. He would have said, and spewed curses. It is offensive to me that you would come and do battle against me. What do you think I am? That's what he's saying. And in verse 44, the Philistine came to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That's Goliath. In all his pride and all his confidence and all his intimidation, the terrorist comes to make war in the valley. Well, in verse 45, I want you to see this. The author then is going to switch the scene and give us the other side. Then David said to the Philistines, so you can imagine Goliath's voice rumbling through the valley. Everybody would have heard it. David, the teenage boy, high-pitched probably, maybe cracking. You come to me with a sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know 
that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Oh, Goliath, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, they are going to feast on a carcass, but not on a little appetizer like me. They are going to dine on your body today. That's what David says. He said, I didn't bring a sword, I didn't bring a spear, I brought the name of the Lord. That is faith. Listen, this is not bravado. This is not William Wallace standing, as great a scene as that is, face painted before the army. We're going in there and we're going to take them and, and then yelling freedom. and all. There's none of that. He doesn't inspire anybody. He doesn't even turn and say, okay, I, I'm going, at least you can do is come with me. He steps out there by himself in faith, trusting God, not for the Israelites, but as the Israelites, as their representative. And all of his weakness... So it's at this point that we can stop and it's easy to draw the lines between here and the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, that the, that the eternal Son of the eternal God would come into humanity. And He didn't come into humanity in a royal way. He did not show up with an, with an host of angelic army before him and trumpets blazing and land in Jerusalem and announce, here I am, the king. And I've come to defeat the enemy. He came in the most vulnerable, weak way imaginable. The eternal son of the eternal God who has been seated at the right hand of the Father for eternity. The Word of God, Jesus, is made flesh and comes and dwells among us. In the first nine months on this planet, He spent in a teenage womb. Comes into the world helpless, homeless, in the midst of shame. Can you imagine? Of all the ways God would design to step out of eternity into history, He comes in the weakest, most insignificant way. And for 30 years leads a life of what we can only understand as obscurity and insignificance in a little town of about 200 in the shadow of metropolitan cities of the day. A nobody from nowhere. The Son of God. Listen, God is not going to save us through Jesus in spite of His weakness. It will be through His weakness. He will take on all the weakness, all the sin, all the frailty, all the anxiety, all the ways in which we are broken, He'll take it on to Himself. And like a sheep led to slaughter, 
he will find himself nailed to a cross. And you can only imagine the Goliath, Satan, spewing his venom at how great he is and the victory he's going to have. As Jesus dies the death and enters the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf. You know, it is in the midst of that weakness that God does something impossible. It is the sacrifice of His Son that has taken all that we owe and has turned it around and redeemed it. See, it's important to know when David goes down into that valley, he doesn't fight for Israel. He, he does. But he fights as Israel. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross for you, but listen, he goes to the cross as you. That's what it means that he's your substitute, that he's your representative. All that you are, he became, so that all that he is, you now are, by faith. That's the issue here. Well, David's speech, David's reply to Goliath is twice as long in length, literally, than the battle recorded. In 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. And the reason that you would fall on your face on the ground after being struck in the head with a stone is because you were running at full speed. And his momentum carried him forward. You know, Goliath would have cursed David in the name of Dagon. Just a few chapters before this, you find out when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines, they put him in the temple of Dagon. You know, what they find, you know where they find Dagon the next morning? Face down on the ground in front of the Ark of God. Here the Philistine is face down on the ground in front of the man of God. God will not be mocked by a Philistine. And let me just say, God will not be mocked by a terrorist of any generation. From the world's eyes, David's not the right man. In fact, he's not a man at all. He's a boy. From the world's eyes, the religious leader's eyes, the Roman's eyes, Jesus wasn't the right man either. We want a guy who comes in strength. We want a guy who bears armor. We want a guy who wields the sword. And Jesus came in weakness to take on our humanity so that he could win the battle once and for all over the sin and the terror that haunted us. The 
the application this morning is not go be David. Because if you read the rest of the story of David, he saves Israel on the battleground here. God saves Israel through David. David's going to turn around and in his failure, in his fallenness, in his frailty, he's going to need a savior. It won't be too long until this faith of the boy turns into the forgetfulness of a man. Listen, that's our story. It's not go be David. It's go in faith trusting in the greater David that has won the victory, who has taken your sin, who has defeated the enemy, who has taken his place at the right hand of the Father and stands there, sits there, even now saying to the eternal Father, the eternal Son looks at you and says, it's mine. She's mine. They're mine. What He is, you are. And what you are, He became. So that He might be this, the sacrifice to satisfy the sin and the debt that you owe. And in turn, grant you and cover you and lavish you with all the perfection that He is. David's not the hero of the story. It points us to a greater David to come. David prevails with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in his hand. In fact, he's going to go up to Goliath. He's going to cut off his head and has to borrow Goliath's sword to do it. I'm sure he did it without asking. And takes his head as a victor to Jerusalem. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer says, listen, there's these great men and women of faith. Remember them. Remember Abraham and remember Moses and Remember Rahab and remember David. Remember them. Then he's going to say at the end of 11 and moving into 12, he says, listen, you, you remember those folks, but listen, here's what you need to do. Here's what I want you to do. You remember their faith, but you fix your eyes on Jesus. He says in verse 2 of chapter 12, looking or fixing your eyes to Jesus, who's the founder of, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To say he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith is to say he is our champion. God sent the ultimate David in weakness. So he would take on our weakness and we would share and be united in His strength. So if you would, would you bow with me and we'll pray. Father, I pray this morning realizing that as we come to this story, 
Uh, the reality is, is that we don't look into the mirror of the story and see our reflection as David here. Father, the mirror of this story reveals about us that we are, we are like Saul. We are like the army that is shaking in our cowardice. Facing an enemy and facing the threat of... <coughs> Father, that's what, that which has gripped us and paralyzed us by fear. And the reality is the enemy, the, the sin, the shame, the guilt, the, all of that's far bigger than we are. And looks like a giant in the valley and mocks us for all to hear. And Father, like Saul and like the army of Israel and like David's brother and like David, we need a Savior, one to redeem us, and not just fight for us, not to inspire us, not one that we emulate, but Father, one that steps into our place and fights as us and wins the victory as us and goes to the grave and is resurrected from the dead. And Father, we find ourselves in Christ, resurrected. Longing and waiting for his return, and where he will, when the trumpets will sound. And he'll return with the army of angels, glorified and eternal. Father, at that moment, every knee bow, every tongue confess Jesus Christ is the Lord. And Father, we claim now he is our victor and our champion and the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so, Father, because of that, there's no threat or fear. Father, not even the threat of death. Even if death seems to win in this day, it has not ultimately won. That, Father, you will, by the power of your Son, raise the dead to new life. So, Father, I pray we'd walk in that new life in the hope of what is to come and all that Jesus has secured for us. Would you work that in our hearts? Would it, would it affect us? Father, would you grant us the ability in those moments to start at the right place, and that is that we are yours in your Son, Jesus. Never forgotten, never left, never forsaken. And so, Father, whatever comes our way, we stand in Him. So, Father, only You can do that for us. And, Father, we only make this request um, in the way we can. And, and it's only by the name of Your Son, Jesus, that we pray. And through the power of Your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.